Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? As the Archbishop and Primate of the Anglican Church in North America, I want to say it's a joy and a privilege to be back here at Christ Church. Thank you, Father Paul, for the invitation to preach. It's really good to be here again. Um, I've just arrived from our College of Bishops meeting, which was held in Florida this past week. And I want you to know uh, we did a lot of things. Uh, Two of the most important was we finally finished uh, the prayer book. And so uh, we've completed everything, and it should be published in June. Secondly, we consented to the election of the new Bishop of New England. Um, I want you to know it is such a privilege to be a part of such a group of godly men. Uh, And I've been in ministry now almost 40 years, a little over 40 years, and I've never been around such men who love the Lord, who are in it not just because of the office but who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ. In our, so I, I just want to share that with you to, for you to know that the bishops of our church are really amazing folks. Thank you, Christ Church, for your leadership and your servant to the, servanthood at, to the Anglican Church in North America. Thank you for your partnership as we have attempted to reach and are attempting to reach North America with the transforming love of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're looking forward to being here in June for our provincial council meeting. And uh, as we gather as a provincial assembly in this place, it'll be the 10th anniversary of the Anglican Church in North America. And it actually started right here. And so uh, thank you for your part. I hope you'll uh, plan to be a part of uh, that event. Um, at that event, we'll ha- we're gonna be giving out the new prayer book. The, the catechism has been revised. Uh, we've got a great lineup of mission speakers um, this place is just going to be very exciting. So put that on your calendars this coming June. Let's pray. Our Father, we come in Jesus' name, and as we open your word, his word, we pray that you'd come down in the power of your spirit, come be our teacher. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us wills to obey. Help us to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And this is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We hear today all kinds of things about Jesus Christ. We hear he was a great teacher. We hear he was a great thinker. We hear he started Christianity. We hear he was a religious fanatic. We hear he was a political revolutionary. Some people would say he was very spiritual. Some others would say he was a man of deep prayer, that he was a man of miracles. And while the culture and the scholars and the intellectuals and the politicians and religious leaders all have their take on who Jesus was and is, I think it's important for us to know what the Bible has to say about him. So I want to invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. I want to examine together with you an important passage about Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Our text begins with us hearing about John the Baptist, baptizing people in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of their sins. John was following the instructions the Lord had given to him to call people to repentance to turn people from their sins and as an outward witness of their repentance to be baptized. Now, as John was doing this, 
people were asking John, and some were wondering in their hearts whether he actually might be the Christ, the Messiah. For if you remember, if you know your history, after the Old Testament days of the Old Testament prophets, there were a little over 400 years in which God didn't speak. There were no prophets, there was no word from God, it was just silence. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene as a voice crying in the wilderness, proclaiming God's word and calling people to turn from their sins, to turn to God, to repent. And so when people ask John the Baptist or they wonder if he's the long-awaited Messiah, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Mightier than I. No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm nothing compared to him strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's holy. He's sacred. He's so holy that I'm not worthy to get near, not even close enough to serve him, to wash his feet, to take his sandals off. John the Baptist not only places Jesus in a seat of honor, but he alludes to his authority. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will bring judgment with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist is is baptizing, and then here comes Jesus to be baptized. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, With you, I'm well pleased. So he's baptized, praying, and then the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends, as it says, in bodily form. They describe it like a dove. I often wondered what that would have looked like, the Holy Spirit actually descending in bodily form. F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, the cleansing of water was associated with John's ministry. The bestowal of the Spirit was associated with someone greater than John, Now this greater baptizer stood before them revealed. So what does this mean? The Holy Spirit descends on the Messiah and he will now baptize believers with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the presence of God himself. That's who the Holy Spirit is, God himself. He baptizes believers with the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit, the one who is to indwell the believer. This Holy Spirit, the one who, like the wind is, makes people born again. This Holy Spirit who, out of one's innermost being, is to flow like a river of living water. So this one descends on Jesus like a dove and remained on him. But the text doesn't end there. The Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form and then a voice is heard from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Son, I love you. And I'm proud of you. 
I don't know about you, but my father was from the generation where he never said, I love you. You never heard compliments. And so I'm on my wedding day, and you know how he was my best man at, at the wedding, and so you know how when you're getting ready to walk into the wedding, you know, there's that kind of nervous time, right? Men will understand this. This nervous time before you walk in the wedding, and my dad looks over at me, and he says, son, I just want you to know I love you and I'm proud of you. And he kisses me. Blew me away. The importance of a father telling a son that I love you and I'm proud of you. And this is what the father says to Jesus. My beloved son. But what does this mean? He's the son of God the Son of God. Well, how can you be the Son of God without being divine? Exactly. How can you be the Son of God and yet have own human flesh? Exactly. This is the whole point. The Son of Man, the Son of God. This is the witness of the Scriptures. This is the witness of the New Testament. This is the witness of John the Baptist even here. In another conversation, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 34, he says this, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist goes from proclaiming what the Messiah would do and proclaiming that he had seen him and bearing witness that he was indeed the Son of God. In John's gospel, The Apostle John states why he actually wrote his gospel, why he wrote about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We find this in John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I wonder how many people miss this in the message of the New Testament. Miss that he is the son of God. Well, Jesus was the son of God. And several things I'd like to share about that. First, Jesus called himself the son of God. A verse most of you could quote, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Secondly, Jesus called God his father. You remember the story in John chapter five about Jesus being in worship and it's, 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 it's the Sabbath day and this man approaches him who who's, needs to be healed, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. And it creates quite a consternation because you're not supposed to do things on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says this in John 5, 17. My father, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then the next verse really gives it all away. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Third, the Jewish leaders understood this. 
And this is why they were trying to kill him. In John chapter 10, verse 30, we find these words. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Fourth, the devil understood him to be the son of God. You remember the temptation story in Matthew chapter four? Jesus goes out into the wilderness, the devil comes to him, begins to tempt him. Matthew four, verse three, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, And then he gives the temptation. Matthew chapter four, verse six, if you are the son of God, and then he gives the temptation. Fifth, Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah proclaimed him also as the son of God. You remember the story of Jesus up in Philippi? He's with his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they give all their different answers. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And sixth, this is the reason for the Jewish leaders having Jesus killed. You remember when on Monday, Thursday, Jesus was arrested and he was taken before the Jewish leaders and the high priest gathered there with him and the high priest asked him, this is Mark 14, verse 61, The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. With that, if you know the rest of the story, the high priest, he ripped his clothes and he said, what more is there to say? He is blasphemy. And blasphemy meant he was worthy of death. It's clear from the teaching of the Bible that the picture we are presented with in Jesus was that he was not a normal human being. He was the son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born as a human baby in a human body, given human flesh, God with skin on. As we say in the creed, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, If you want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. As Colossians 1.15 says, he is the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus said it this way in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Can you imagine one of your friends saying that? Well, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Pretty radical thing to say. So Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends, and the Father calls him his beloved son. Now, I'm not for a minute going to suggest to you that this is easy to believe in today's context. It's not. But I also want to say to you that it's only through belief that one's eyes are opened. There's always the faith element. Now, before you say, well, that's mighty convenient for you Christians to keep pulling out the faith card, I need to say that this is how it works. 
It's the only way it works, by faith. Yes, we can give you all the intellectual underpinnings, and they can lean the tower toward believing in Jesus and away from doubt, but there's still the element of faith that has to come in. It has to be applied, belief. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for by grace you are saved through faith. John three sixteen, which we heard a few minutes ago, Jesus said, whoever believes has eternal life. In John five twenty four, Jesus said it this way, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And in Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus summed it all up by saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Now, I know this morning you've made an intentional effort to be here. I mean, after the Cowboys' defeat last night, I mean, I, I would be depressed too and want to stay home and go do something else, but, but you're here. But why are you here? Is it just to go through the ritual? Is it just because you're supposed to? It's Sunday, you know, in the South, we Christians go to church. We're supposed to, right? Or do you really believe. The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to take it from the intellectual to the heart. It's one thing to understand, well, that, that, that but to truly believe, to let go and let God have his way. I believe. I trust you, Lord. I understand. Help me and my, my non-understanding, but I, I believe. But it, there's this element of faith which you have to make. All of us do. An element, a step of trust, a step of faith. Kierkegaard called it the leap of faith. But without the faith, it doesn't make sense. So with that, I'd like to invite us to pray for a minute. As we bow our heads in prayer, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk to the Lord in your own way. Perhaps you do need to say, Lord, I believe. Maybe you need to say, Lord, I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. But I invite you to submit yourself to him and allow him to have his way in your life. So in the quietness of these moments, Pray as you need to pray. Our Father, we thank you that you love us so much. So, so much. And that in loving us so much, you sent Jesus, your son, to be our savior and to be our Lord. I pray for all of us that we would become people of faith, people of belief. And Lord, I also want to thank you for this incredible work you do in us.
when we come to believe, that you actually adopt us as your children, as your sons and as your daughters. You give us the privilege and access to be able to call you Father, our Father, like Jesus was able to call you Father. So I ask, work in us, build our faith, strengthen our faith, help us be people of faith so that we can always pray, Abba, Father, our Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.